You're listening to the Zoe Turner Podcast, business and mindset conversations that will help you move from fear and uncertainty to development and growth so that you can crush both life and business. Please welcome your host, Zoe Turner. So today I am speaking to Adam Cox. Adam is a UK leading hypnotherapist. He's a phobia specialist. He can help move you from a place of fear and anxiety to ease and calm. And he's, like I say, he specifically works with individuals who have long-standing phobias. So welcome to the podcast today. And first question is, you are a phobia specialist. What is a phobia Thank you for the invite, Zoe. Thank you. Yeah, a phobia is different from a fear. Um, So a couple of years back, I was invited to go on BBC Radio because new research had showed that people had a phobia of losing their phone or running out of batteries on their phone. And I had to explain to them that's a very valid fear, but it's not a phobia. What makes it a phobia is that it's an unconscious, intense feeling of anxiety caused by a trigger that they're not in control of. Um, So typical phobias could be phobias of animals, for example, like spiders or dogs. Um, But effectively, nobody chooses to see a spider and think, oh, I'm going to be scared of that. For it to be a phobia, they have an unconscious reaction. They're not choosing to feel that way. And it's really intense. And most importantly, to make it a phobia, it's generalized. So you don't have to have seen every single spider in the world to fear them. Anything that kind of looks like a spider is going to create a similar reaction. Yeah, well, a phobia definitely is a type of fear. Um, and, And the way that I separate fear and anxiety, fear is almost the, um, the, the, the stimulus or the overall, um thing that causes anxiety anxiety is really the symptoms and they can be used interchangeably in conversation but fear at most levels is a very quick evaluation of something undesirable happening whereas the anxiety is what your body does so some people shake some people uh, get muscle tension some people cry um some people just kind of feel horrible um or they get very stressed or lots of adrenaline but anxiety is the response of the fear uh, and the fear is normally the cause of the anxiety. Yeah, so it's a great question. And, and, and the thing is, you know, a lot of fear comes from um, trying to manage or deal with uh, undesirable consequences. And right now there are so many different variables so many different variations that it's difficult to know what to be um, frightened of so for business owners for example they might be fearful that their business might not survive um you know for people um that are you know stuck in their homes they might be fearful of 
going out shopping because they might catch a, you know, an infection. So there's going to be lots of different things. Now, um, overall, one of the key things that makes fear fear is some kind of valuation. Now, there'll be some people, and you might know a few people, that are totally not bothered by the coronavirus at all. You know, they're kind of, you know, you know, some people might be really stressed and anxious and they're looking around and they're seeing people and they're like, well, why aren't you bothered by it, by this? And it's simply because they've given it a different meaning. They've evaluated it in a, in a different way. Now, if you've got an elderly uh, at risk relative that if you get infected, they could get infected and they might die, you're going to have a different appreciation of the potential consequences than someone that is. I don't know, young in their 20s, and they think, well, even if I get it, I can cope with it. They're going to evaluate it differently just on a pragmatic level. But equally, within individuals, you might have, you know, several people of exactly the same age, similar situations, but because they perceive things differently and they evaluate things differently, they're going to have much different levels of anxiety. Um, and, and, and the key really is to accept what you can't control and to influence what you can control. And then that gives you the, the benefit of being able to evaluate risks in a very um, accurate, useful way, but not worrying about things. When, when most people have high levels of anxiety, they tend to catastrophize and they tend to think about things that they're really not in control of. Um, there'll be people worrying right now that aren't nurses, aren't doctors, worrying that there's a lack of face masks. Well, that might not even have any impact on their life, but they're still worrying because there's a lack of availability. Um, and we saw when people were literally yeah, panicked buying really toilet paper and pasta uh, um, like that, you know, you when things look scarce, they're thinking, well, I like the control of knowing that I have that even oh, if, I'm, if so I don't need it. To, so, you know, you, you see interesting reactions to fear uh, as, a, as a species. And, and let's not forget we're an animal. Um, and and we're our minds, our brains are hardwired for survival, which to, is um, why we do a lot of these strange things every now and then. Phobias or anxieties that they have. How is it that you do that so so rapidly? Yeah, I think it, it has the perception of magic and, and the, the metaphor that I use quite often when I do talks on, on fears and phobias and, and the, rap, the rapidity of change is that if you're watching a magician on stage, it looks magical because you don't know all of the preparation, all of the kind of the background things that's going on, the misdirection and everything else. Um, when I do a workshop and there's, you know, maybe 20, 30 people there and they've got intense phobias and they've had them for decades. And then within a couple of hours, they don't have those phobias at the end of that it looks magical. It, it looks, you know, because the brain is thinking, well, change, most people have a belief system that change takes a long time. You know, that's one of our core belief systems. Um, a few people that are familiar with hypnotherapy, NLP, you know, some of the rapid change approaches do appreciate that change can take very, very, it, it could be instant almost if you find the right leverage. And more importantly, you know what you're doing. Where it came from for me is the the personal struggle that I had of, um, for you know several years dealing with very very intense anxiety 
Um, I had, you know, various phobias, but I also had social anxiety. So for about, you know, a period of almost a year, rarely leaving the flat that I was in. Um, so effectively, my first client that I had to kind of really deal with phobias and severe anxiety was me. And I would love to say I did it in an hour back then. I didn't. It took it took months and months um, because I had to research what worked. I was my own guinea pig. I had to test out different kind of things. Um, but eventually, if you do something enough and you pay attention to what works and what doesn't work, you build the sensory acuity. You find enough distinctions to figure out, okay, that works and that doesn't. And when things don't work, you then refine it and find out when it does work when you're dealing with other people. Um, so the reason now that I can help people get rid of phobias very quickly is that I've worked with hundreds and hundreds of, of phobics um, and doing these kind of principles where you get people to give a different meaning um, to whatever the stimulus is. Sometimes education can help, but sometimes it really is psychological techniques that uh, some of these were created in the 1960s, 1970s, and are just not widely known, you know, and it, it it's kind of crazy like in the in the medical profession if there's a technique that works you know doctors surgeons they're trained in that specific thing because it works in the mental health industry and in the therapy industry and the change industry it doesn't you know people get very loyal to belief systems and their methodology and their approaches uh, and they get become very tribal and there is a weirdly when you when you think about the intention is to help people there is a lack of an emphasis on what works and what works quickly and what's in the benefit of the client, um, which is, is, is kind of strange in a way, but I tend to not be loyal to any particular set of tools, but become obsessed with how do I get the outcome for the client fears. quickly? Um, and that now, means that I'm not to restricted to any one particular approach. Person. I can use every approach um, podcast. You have to find out what show. works best and, and there are certain approaches including hypnotherapy and, and nlp certain and approaches that, that do work very quickly for some people but, but then they don't work for all the people so you have to have a toolkit um, yeah, big enough to kind of figure out what works for each individual to, to see from where you've come to where you are now and if there's anybody watching this that has any kind of fears then i guess just listening to you and your own personal story is an inspiration because you know they can they can overcome that and there are you know like you know we're discussing now there's techniques and strategies that they can use to overcome that quickly and easily I think one of the most important lessons I learned with anxiety, anxiety can feel very overwhelming. Um, and, and the reason it feels overwhelming is because what happens is at the point where the, the brain at an unconscious level evaluates that it can't cope, that it, it has nothing left, um, then the sympathetic nervous system um, releases um, this kind of fight or flight kind of response. So, you know, cortisol and uh, adrenaline and all these kind of things that are hardwired for survival. And if you were being stalked by a saber-toothed tiger, that's a very, very useful thing. You know, this function that we have in our brains 
may be the reason why we exist as a species. It's just not that useful if you've been asked to speak on a stage and you get severe anxiety, or if you see a house spider, or if you, you know, you know, I've, I've worked with people that have a fear of balloons, fear of germs, you know, fear of death, all these kind of things. It's just fear is useful in the right doses in the right context, but it's not useful if it reaches the point of overwhelm and, and shuts people down. And when I'm working with clients and, and I can see that they have severe panic attacks, that it, it's really distressing, these are frequent things. I ask them a question and I say, right, when was the last time that anxiety killed you? And you, you get this strange kind of look on their face and they're like, well, we'll never. And I say, well, how many times do you, do you get anxious in a week? And we kind of work it out that in their lifetime, they might have had thousands of like intense anxious experiences. So then I, I frame it in a different way. I say, so every time anxiety is trying to beat you, you've won. And then they kind of, they get it that anxiety is temporary. And if it's temporary, then the key thing is how do we make it less frequent and less intense? So they reach a point where they can actually cope with it. Because the goal is not to remove any anxiety whatsoever. It's to get it to a point where it's manageable. Because, so you probably have, things that you really um don't like but you wouldn't say that you have a phobia of them okay there's a lot of people for example that don't have a phobia of clowns the phobia of clowns is called coulrophobia very few people actually have that phobia but there are lots of people that just find them a bit weird and a bit creepy okay so, he certainly is. Yeah, and the uh the YouTubers that were kind of, um, you know, having chainsaws and stuff. But, but I mean, essentially, there's a lot of people that don't like them. You know, I don't have a phobia of mosquitoes, but I don't like them. I don't want to be around them. So you just want to get the anxiety to a point where it's very, very manageable um, so that you can just live your life. There's a lot of people that get nervous about speaking on a stage or speaking on a, on a, on a live broadcast like this um, that wouldn't consider it a phobia. They wouldn't consider it, oh, I've got a, pho a phobia of public speaking, but they still don't, they feel uncomfortable about it. And, and there is a big difference between being uncomfortable. I, I have a framework that I use and I say, right, if anxiety is less than five out of 10, we can call that discomfort. And there's a lot of people that feel uncomfortable doing certain things. And if your body starts doing things not of your choosing, rapid breathing, your heart rate gets a bit faster, you might get tension not of your, your choosing, we can label that as kind of a six, seven, or eight out of 10, which, you know, I personally label anxiety because it's genuinely, you know, a more intense level of, of fear. And then for me, I label nine or 10 out of 10 as panic. And panic is a useful phrase at that point because they, they kind of shut down, they freeze or they freak out or whatever happens. For those people that have had panic attacks, they are very unpleasant things. And what can happen if someone has a panic attack it's such an unpleasant thing that avoidance tends to be the key strategy. So they experience this panic attack and then they start thinking, well, where did I have that panic attack? You know, bearing in mind that humans are pattern recognition creatures. That's kind of what makes us the species that we are. So if something very undesirable happens, your brain starts thinking, well, where was I when that happened? What was I thinking? What was I doing? And because it's such an unpleasant thing, they want to avoid that to reduce the likelihood of a panic attack and if they're ever in a similar situation, they start thinking about that beforehand. So they're mentally preparing for strategies, coping strategies. Um, and, and what can happen is that people can develop a fear of, of the anxiety itself. They want to avoid feeling 
this overwhelming fear and panic. So that can, it certainly happened in my case, the world gets smaller and smaller and smaller because you can only avoid so much. And the more anxious you are, the more primed you are to create new anxiety triggers in, in many ways. And that's why you get people that get, you know, such a high level of anxiety that they develop general anxiety disorder where whatever they do creates anxiety. Um, the, the important thing really for anyone listening to this right now is to know that anxiety is temporary and the thought process, processes that create anxiety also are temporary. And just feel a certain way and you have done for a while doesn't mean you have to always feel that way. And, and, and what I tend to do with people is, you know, I use the metaphor of uh, rewiring their brain. You know, there are, there are no wires in the brains, but there are neural pathways which work very similar to kind of electrical wiring system. It tends to flow in a particular direction. If uh, I know you're, you know, a few thousand miles away there, but if I was close to you and I threw a ball towards you, you would catch that ball, not because you're consciously thinking I'm going to catch a ball, but because you already have the neural pathways there to know how to catch a ball. In the same way, if you drive a car, you're not doing it consciously. You've got those neural pathways, so you, your body just knows how to do that. For those people that experience phobias and severe panic attacks, they've all got the neural pathways to encounter that unpleasant feeling without thinking about it. And that's what makes it so debilitating and distressing. They're not choosing to feel that way. That's just what's happening based on the, the context of the situation that they're around. And there is nothing more frustrating for a phobic than someone trying to explain them how silly their phobia is. Um, you know, if someone's got a fear of spiders and someone else doesn't, that other person is saying, but they're small, they can't hurt you. And guess what? They already know that, but they feel it anyway. Um, you know, and, and, and it, the thing with fear and anxiety, it is, um, it does not discriminate. You know, I worked with a, a champion, a champion cage fighter, an MMA fighter. Um, and, um, you know, obviously completely confidential, uh, never reveal any names, but he told me that, um, he could never tell anyone at all that he had a phobia of balloons. It'd be ridiculed, you know, and if you've got this kind of very tough guy that would be fearless in a situation that would normally freak anyone else out, but for him, he couldn't take his little girl to birthday parties because there'd be balloons there. Um, once these phobias get in, and, and, and the thing is, they seem funny to people that don't have them, but they are very, very real for the people that do have them. Um, and they can be very debilitating, very detrimental. But the good news is they don't have to be permanent if you don't want them to be. Yeah, well, yeah. So it's, it's, it's kind of a chicken and egg situation for people that do have very intense phobias that can trigger a panic attack. And weirdly, if someone has a panic attack, that might create a, a phobia. So it's kind of one can cause cause the other. Um, and, and, you know, what can create, there's, there's two main ways that phobias are created. Uh, one is called a sensitizing event. And a sensitizing event is normally in childhood, but it doesn't have to be someone experiences something that cause a high level of anxiety at the very point 
where they are around that particular thing. So, you know, for example, I worked with a guy who had a, a phobia of dogs, cynophobia, um, and he said, yeah, I think it probably happened when I was a child uh, because the neighbor had a big dog. And he could remember a time where he was by a fence in his garden and the dog, the big dog, jumped up at the side of the fence, started barking, and it would have been literally this far away from his head. Yes, there was a fence in between there, but if you're a five, six-year-old boy and you've got this huge dog that's like twice your size barking and you're not expecting it, that's going to create high levels of anxiety. The dog barking, the look of the dog, he wants to avoid that situation. He's going to be making pictures of his head of that dog. Well, that's how phobias are, are created. The second way phobias are created are from um, learned behavior. And it, and it seems weird, but a lot of people will learn a phobia from their parents. So their parents are absolutely terrified of speaking in public or they're scared of a mouse or whatever it might be. The child sees that and then they start thinking, that must be a legitimate fear. Um, and, and a lot of people can be resentful to their parents or someone in their family that had the phobia because they know that they're the cause of that. But equally, what most of us do, most of our learning is learned in that way. The first language that we learn to speak is not in a classroom. It's being surrounded by the people that we live with and you just kind of hear them talking. It's a very fast way of learning. Um, and you don't need to be run over by a car to know that crossing a road can be dangerous because you witness that firsthand from the reaction of the people that you're around. So it's a, it's a form of ex accelerated learning. It's just learning something that isn't particularly useful. Uh, to answer the question, how can people reduce um, panic attacks or, or kind of severe anxiety. The, the key thing is a, a panic attack feels so overwhelming um, that everything kind of shuts down. There is a belief for a lot of people that have panic attacks that they will die in that moment because they tend to forget to breathe. Um, their heart is beating like they're sprinting, even though they're stationary. And when your body starts doing things like that, it's not a ridiculous thought to think, I'm going to die here. You know, it, it's such an unpleasant um, kind of feeling. The, the key thing, if someone's actually having a panic attack, there's, there's a few very useful things um, to do. Um, and you don't want to take really, really deep breaths and, and really long breaths because that can hyperventilate and actually can cause more, you know, um, of, the, of the distress. But what you want to get used to breathing normally and what can happen when people are having a panic attack is, quite frankly, they forget to breathe. Um, because they're focused on so many different things, they're very focused on breathing in that they forget to breathe out. So one of the key things that really makes sense if you're having a panic attack is just to not have really, really deep breaths and things like that, but just force an outward breath out. Just kind of imagine that you're trying to blow out a candle that's like a meter away, and that lungs, which then forces you to breathe in again. You don't want to take really deep breaths, but just get used to breathing normally because if you're breathing normally, that your body can seize that as well of oh, things are okay. And you have got the ability to have that almost a little bit of a hack to say, if I can just get myself breathing normally, and that's easier said than done when your brain's running at a million miles an hour, your blood's full filled with adrenaline. But if you can get to that point of kind of thinking, right, okay, just kind of breathe out. That's, that's really going to help. Um, the second thing is to accept that it is temporary. And for those people that have had panic attacks before, well, the panic attacks didn't kill them then, so it's highly likely it's not going to kill you now. So just knowing that you're going to get through this, and a really useful metaphor to think about panic attacks is 
even the phrase panic attack implies a victim that panic is attacking you okay which is not a helpful framework um, whereas a more useful framework is is a wave now most people have had the experience of being at the beach where there's big waves bigger waves than normal and if they just stand in front of big waves the waves are going to knock them over they're going to be the victim of the wave what most people learn fairly early on is that if they go into the wave then actually the wave has less ability to you know impact them if that makes sense so i i encourage a lot of my clients to start perceiving anxiety not as um, something external happening to them but something they're experiencing with the anxiety so they can kind of ride it like a wave temporary um, which is a really useful way of, of kind of thinking about it and also reframing it from this is happening to me to well this is this is something that I've beaten before I can beat it again um, and each and every time I beat it, it it increases my score now if you look at a, a, a you know a, a very successful boxer if you look at um, Floyd Mayweather for example considered one of the best boxers around 50 fights never lost the fight Okay, well, if you start perceiving that every time anxiety tries to fight you and you come out and it hasn't killed you and it's not knocked you over and you can still carry on with your life, a lot of people out there with severe anxiety have got a record better than the very best boxers because they've never lost against anxiety, but they always will win. And reframing it that whenever anxiety comes along, you've got the skills and abilities to actually deal with that, again, is a useful way. So some of it is how you evaluate what's happening. Um, Secondly, you know, it, it's also thinking about what am I in control of? So you can control your breathing, you can control your thoughts. Um, you know, there's certain things. There tends to be a lot of rapid inner dialogue, um, which can um, effectively amplify anxiety. So what can happen if someone's having a panic attack? Because they really don't want a panic attack. If they um, are in a situation and they start feeling tense, normally right there in the pit of their, of their kind of intestines, they might have a little internal phrase, and that internal phrase is, oh, it's coming. And then their heart's faster. It's like, oh no, my heart's beating faster. And like, I'm gonna, some, something's gonna happen here. It gets faster. Oh no, I'm gonna die. Now, if you say these kind of things, then effectively you're evaluating it that you're not in control. And then at that point, the sympathetic nervous system kicks in, and then your body's filled with adrenaline. And when you've got that much adrenaline in your blood, well, yeah, your heart's going to beat faster. You know, there's going to be lots of things happening, but it will be temporary. And one of the reasons yeah, that it's worth so sharing why it's temporary, your body your can only produce can enough adrenaline help. to last about 20 minutes, 25 minutes top, top. So, you know, your body's going to run out of adrenaline um, before long anyway. So this is not a permanent thing, but it might be an undesirable thing. So in terms of handling panic attacks, it's kind of knowing it's temporary and you know like you can start shifting your focus well. away so from what's all my uh, happening to water, you but more happening with you was bad like those waves were really really high so high i mean i remember they were going to cancel that event it was a 70.3 so it was 2.4 k in in the water and um they were going to cancel that event but they didn't instead of having one loop they had two loops so you had to kind of get out of the water the waves were that strong initially i was doing doggy paddle <laughs> i was doing doggy paddle and breaststroke and like you were just describing then i was creating this kind of um i had a little voice in my head 
and it was saying not very nice things to me. And I remember just saying to myself at one point, I think I could, I knew a panic attack was coming on, but obviously when you're familiar with kind of the different tools and techniques to use, you know, you can apply them and overcome it. And one thought, I remember one fleeting thought came through my mind, right, I'm going to put my hand up and the woman in the canoe can come over and get me out of the water. And then I remember thinking, oh no, I'm not going to um, give in this easily. I'm not going to give in all this training. I'm not going to give in. And um, and that's when it just clicked. And I um, started the waves that were bashing against my head. As strangely as this sounds, I like boxing, right? And, you know, when you're in the boxing ring and you're being hit and, you know, look, I mean, no one likes being hit, but at that time, I was just imagining that I was in a ring and the waves that were coming over my head were as part of my sparring session because they were bashing me and that got me through it to the point that it sounds a bit perverse this because I did certainly don't like being punched but to the fact that I knew that I had to create something in my head that was going to get me through out of that swim and that's what did it and I actually got to the point where I was enjoying I I pretended that I was enjoying it and um Looking back, I wasn't, but I knew I had to create that in my own mind to get through it. So, yeah, it it can be overcome. And if there's people listening to this that experience debilitating panic attacks using the techniques that you've just described, Adam, they can, you know, they they can overcome them. Yeah, to totally they can. And, and you know, once once you've had one successful time where you've been in a situation that previously would have caused intense anxiety or panic and it doesn't, then that gives you evidence that you can cope again. And because you know that you can cope again, then anxiety gets even less. So, you know, you can you can take the control. You don't have to constantly fight this. You you know, you can get to a point. Um, and, and one of the things that I encourage people to, to do, and, and, and it works on the principle of... Um, in many ways, cognitive dissonance is kind of how we evaluate what what actually happens. But I remember when I was um, a, a child, there was quite a high diving board. And I went up at this diving board, looked over the edge uh, and, and just, oh, this is too. And you kind of feel that kind of thing. And, you kind of go, and then I went back down the, the stairs and then I was kind of thinking when I looked back at it again, it felt even more terrifying than I'd just been there because I'd, I'd backed away from it. I'd retreated. Because the, the brain at that point evaluates, well, for me to have kind of backtracked publicly from that thing, it must be because it, it's a genuine fear. And, it, and it's, a, it's a mind game, a lot that of these things. What you tend to find is yeah. that a lot of the fears are just shadows and action question. is light. Often, and shadows um, can't exist in the same place fear, as light. When so when you actually do, do the very thing action, that you're afraid of, makes that can provide evidence so that you can cope less. and therefore the anxiety disappears. So actually, it took me half an hour, but I plucked up the coverage to actually jump off that diving board. And before I knew it, I jumped off another four or five times. Like the fear had completely gone just by taking the action, if that makes sense. And a
it it totally is and and i mean i've done so many workshops we uh, i work with a company called uh, creature courage uh, and we do workshops with people that um have spider phobias it's called the spider courage experience and you've got it's one of the most popular that's why we do a workshop it's one of the most popular phobias that exist and you've you've got people that for some I mean, we've had people 70 80 years old there and, and fair play to them they want to get rid of that phobia at that point in their life they they haven't created this belief system oh it's too late you know they they even now even then thought okay i can get rid of this so you've had people that have had this phobia for decades and when they finally and we do all the kind of techniques and treatment and all this kind of stuff but when they finally actually hold the spider and sometimes this spider is a massive tarantula when they finally do it, the expression is not what they think it's going to be. They think there's going to be this kind of feeling of, wow, I faced my biggest fear and it's kind of amazing. It's something different. When the, when the spider actually goes on their hand, they're looking at it and they're like, was that it? Because what they've really been facing hasn't been a fear of spiders, a real fear of actual spiders, but they've been dealing with their internal representation of what that fear means for all these decades you know we we had a lady that hadn't gone in her garden for like three years because that's where the spiders were now every now and then we need to collect spiders for the workshop sometimes i can go out into a garden and not find a spider but in her mind she couldn't even go outside because she had a picture in her head it was just filled with with spiders sometimes you're not dealing with reality you're dealing with the perception and sometimes the perception if it's linked to an emotion um, feels real even when it isn't and the reason why action can destroy a lot of those fears is that you figure out that it's nothing like what you've been thinking it is it's no different with the child you know imagining some monster under the bed or in the cupboard or something like that that can feel terrifying but what do they do? Switch the light on, open the cupboard. Ah, there's nothing there. The action can the destroy the fear very, very quickly. Else. What advice can you give them? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's difficult to give, you know, specific advice because everyone's business is different, you know, and, and they're in different circumstances. So I'm fortunate that uh, I have a, as well as a hypnotherapy practice, I have a PR agency and, and, and we've been able to um, respond in the sense that people are still working, they're just working from home. Now, for those people where technology enables them to adapt, well, that would be my advice. You know, look at look at the ways in which you can still serve your clients and serve your customers in a way that doesn't mean you have to stop. Um, now, you, we're, we're seeing lots of very innovative things. Um, personal trainers are kind of doing classes online, for example, and, you know, people are turning from doing the thing for them to showing other people how to do it, a consultancy model. So I would say the, the first thing to do really is... Um, deal with certain harsh realities and 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 i, I you know th there's there is a, a perception that you know people that are you know in let's say this kind of positive thinking or personal development kind of bubble are thinking right well just always think positive 
Well, that is a dangerous, that, that's as dangerous as always thinking negative, because if you're thinking, well, everything's going to be fine, don't have to worry about anything, um, and there is a complete absence of any kind of fear or anxiety, well, then you're not going to do what's necessary to adapt and, and change. You know, in, in nature, it's the, it's the animals that adapt to their environment that survive. Now, you don't want to be one of those creatures that say, everything's fine, it'll be okay, not, nothing to worry about, because that won't prompt you to evaluate and make the changes necessary to adapt in whatever your particular market and model is for you. So that, that's a dangerous strategy. So I would say first thing is to accept harsh realities. What are the things that absolutely would happen, could happen, may happen in that order um, and then try and work out how you mitigate those particular harsh realities. You've got to deal with things as they are, not as you want them to be first. But then, you know, you and, and a lot of the harsh realities are that we're not in control of a lot of things. You know, I don't, I don't sit in those Cobra meetings. You know, I have nothing to do with politics. There are, you know, I'm not a frontline doctor. There are so many things I have no influence over whatsoever. But I can accept that people are doing their things in those related areas. So for me, my job is to really focus on what I'm in control of. So I'm in control of um, my own emotional state. I'm in control of how I communicate to my team. I'm in control of the strategy and, and the different ways. I'm in control of checking in and, and working out what we need to do differently. And I would say one of the most important things to reduce anxiety as a business owner is not to spend any more time than necessary thinking about things that you're not in control of because it is a it is a time drain and I, and I see people and and you know each to their own people having their opinion on politics and conspiracy theories and all those kind of things and 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 for me personally I don't invest any time in that because I'm not in control of those things I can control how I respond to lockdown rules social distancing rules you know if furlough is available to some of my staff if i get certain grants i'm going to respond to anything that's actually happening but i'm not going to worry too much about the ifs and maybes the things that i can't control i'm just going to check what's actually happening and then respond very very quickly to what's happening but i am going to focus obsessively with what i'm in control of and and do what i can to make the best of of undoubtedly is a inconvenient situation at best and an awful situation at worst you know thousands of people are dying so the idea that i'm going to say oh everything's great and i'll i'll just kind of pivot and, and all this kind of stuff i think that's a bit disrespectful to those businesses that aren't in, in a position that, that can do that but i will absolutely focus on doing the very best that i can for my business and my clients because that's my duty to my staff or myself or my situation and i think that will massively reduce anxiety the other thing that you can do to reduce anxiety as a business owner um, is to avoid the, the the most common ways that people deal with anxiety and, and, the, and the coping strategies that most people deal with anxiety, first of all, is avoidant, um, kind of head in the sand, you know, oh, I don't want to know what's happening. It's a really bad idea as a coping strategy. Yes, the anxiety might go down, but then real consequences might happen that mean the anxiety gets even worse. So that, that's really not a good idea. Um, the, the second thing that people tend to do is um, some form of self-medication. Now, that could be prescription drugs, non-prescription drugs, food or alcohol, smoking, whatever it might be. Um, a lot of people, because anxiety is an unpleasant feeling, 
when you do certain things, that feeling goes away. But that's how addictions get started. And there's a lot of people drinking a lot more than they would usually drink, partly because they're bored, let's be honest, but equally because it's a very good coping strategy in the short term with anxiety. It's just a really bad strategy in the long term. It makes the symptoms go away, but it doesn't deal with the cause. And the third way that people cope with uh, severe anxiety is distraction. Spend a lot of time watching TV, social media, those kind of things. Now, these things, that they're okay in small doses, but you don't want to rely on them as a long-term coping strategy. So the key thing is thinking, right, what is the real root cause of the anxiety here? And can I fix that in some way? And sometimes how you fix it is accepting that you can't control it. Acceptance is still a form of, of fixing that source of, of anxiety. But if you can influence it in any way, then that's an ideal strategy because then you're getting to the root cause rather than you know, putting a sticky plaster on, on something under the surface. But if people are feeling horrible and it's the anxiety symptoms they want to manage, then there's a couple of things that they can do. And, and one of the best things is any form of exercise and fresh air. You know, use that daily exercise, get out in nature, get some fresh air if you can. Uh, and if you can't, do okay. press up and jump and jack in your in your in your front room. You do some kind today. of thing to get your body moving. Because that's gonna enable you to breathe differently, it changes your biochemistry, changes your physiology, and it'll get you in a more positive um state and and the and the mental state and the emotional state um you know is a weird thing you can't feel anxious and excited at the same time so kind of use your body in a way that gets you um in in a positive emotional state Yeah, so I'd say there's um, a couple of things that might be useful just on the back of this episode. So if, if someone has a phobia or severe anxiety, um, I do free 30-minute consultations to explore how I could work with them. Um, and there's also lots of free content, free videos on phobias and anxiety. And that's at phobiaguru.com. Um, and right now what I'm doing, I, I launched a, a second podcast recently called The Hypnotist. And I've just got free hypnosis sessions on there. So a lot of the time people can't afford to work with a, a hypnotherapist. Um, so if you want to, uh, and, and there's a lot there dealing with anxiety and empowerment and resourceful um, states. So if you go on Spotify or Apple Podcasts and just put the hypnotist, uh, you'll see uh, half of my face on the, on the screen and click that and you can get some free hypnosis sessions.